with us. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We have crossed over into a new chapter. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has noticed that, but uh, we give thanks for the steady, slow exposition, and then when we cross over a new chapter, we give thanks. Finally, we're on to something new. But uh, it's not that new. It's not that new. Continuing with the Apostle Paul, chapter 4, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, he's been articulating that our salvation is based upon our faith in Christ. And here in chapter 5, he's going to talk about the hope that we have now as a result of being justified with Christ. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about hope. And we're going to be looking at what the word hope biblically means, and we'll, we'll try to answer that question in a little bit today. Uh, but we're going to be reminding ourselves of the incredible future that awaits us. And so we're just looking at verses 1 and 2 today, so I invite you to look with me in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to pause as we usually do and ask the Holy Spirit uh, just to help us to illuminate the text, and then, and then we'll get to it. So the Apostle Paul, continuing in the text, says in Romans chapter 5, verse, verse 1, Therefore, so based on everything I just said in chapter 4, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's, uh, let's pause and ask the Father to help us. Lord, we, we just lift our thoughts and our hearts to you this morning. We pray, God, that you would speak to us. We ask, Lord, that you would just quiet every heart. You would still every fear that you would, for, for now, just remove every anxiety, every worry, and help us, O oh Lord, just to focus in on what you are trying to say to us. We pray, God, that your spirit would be with us today, that you would illuminate the text before us, and that through your word, by your spirit, you would kindle this hope deep within us. Not so much a, a wish for the future, but as the word means, as you intend it to mean, a confidence, a certainty that these things are true. Do this work in your people today, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. The most strangely wonderful thing of all was that he had this new sense of cleanness. Not physical cleanness, his soul was clean. The man who lived among the tombs, you might refer to him as the tomb man, he looked up at Jesus again, and his lucid mind mulled over the words that he had heard, Son of the Most High God. Who would have thought that the Son of God would look so much like any other ordinary Jewish man? He wasn't very big, at least not what one would expect a man to look like who was also Almighty God. And he wasn't especially distinctive. There wasn't anything unattractive about him, but he didn't have the appeal that you might think the Son of God would have. His lucid mind continued to mull over it, and the tomb man he looked at this Jesus, and he came to the realization, you know what, I could probably take him in a fight. After all, he had beaten off much more impressive-looking men in his demonic rages. 
It was, in fact, his demons that had recognized who Jesus was and had proclaimed those words, Son of the Most High God. What was it, he wondered, that they saw? In all of his tormented years, this man who had lived among the tombs had never felt anything like the terror that coursed through him when he saw Jesus getting out of the boat for the very first time. It was the terror of the damned. He had thought he'd been living in hell already, but now he knew better. And now, with the demons gone, having been cast out of him by this Jesus, this Son of God, having been cast into a herd of pigs, well, nothing he had ever experienced came close to the safety and the peace that he felt simply by being near to Jesus. He had only known Jesus for a few minutes, but he had already determined to be the disciple of Christ for the rest of his life. Life with Jesus, he was certain, would be heaven on earth. A man looked out on the Sea of Galilee as pig carcasses were washing ashore, and the crowd that was there that came to see this incredible miracle began to murmur. And the murmuring got louder and louder. And then the murmuring began to crescendo into anxious pleas and cries of desperation. Please leave. Leave us. We don't want you here, and we don't want any more trouble. And some were already hurriedly rushing away, fearful, looking over their shoulder. They just wanted to get out of there. The two men felt incredible confusion and grief over all of this. These people, well, they just they didn't understand Jesus wasn't anything like the demons he had just cast out. Jesus' power, it was clean, and it was holy. They were jumping to the wrong conclusions and running away. If they would just listen to what he had to say, they would know the truth. He looked to Christ, but Christ had already turned his back and was motioning for Peter and the other disciples to begin putting the boat back into the water he wasn't going to defend himself. He wasn't going to explain. He was just going to quietly walk away. This couldn't be how it ended. Surely he should explain himself to these people. Surely he should help them to make sense of it all. The tomb man, the former demoniac that was possessed by a legion of demons, cried out when he saw that Jesus was leaving, saying, I want to go with you. I want to be with you. Luke chapter 8 tells us that the man begged him earnestly that he might be with him. But Jesus' response was this, no, go home, return to where you're from. We tend to think of following Jesus as going somewhere else leaving behind the familiar, perhaps, for the unfamiliar. We confuse the idea of leaving everything for the sake of following Jesus to mean uh, leaving everyone and everything we've ever known and sort of running away from home. Forsaking all for Christ and running away from home are not the same thing. And sometimes following Jesus, just like this demoniac from Gadara, the more difficult call that Christ places on our life is the call simply to stay where we are or to go back home. The question is, how can Jesus send any of us back home when for so many of us, home, the place where we've been from, is a place of hurt? 
and heartache. It's a place of pain. And for this man, it was a place of torment and demonic possession. How can Jesus send him back home? And the answer to that question is this. Jesus can call us to go back to those dark places of pain and heartbreak. Jesus can call us to go home because Jesus goes with us. Not necessarily in physical form, but by giving us three gifts, three amazing blessings, which he secured for us on the cross. Number one, he gives us peace. Number two, he grants us access to grace. And number three, he sends us with hope, a hope that causes us to worship. It is the hope of glory. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5. As we said previously, he has spent all of chapter 4 arguing that salvation is by faith, that we believe in God, that it is based entirely on what Christ has done for us on the cross. And now he moves here to chapter 5, and he begins to explain what are the benefits, what are the blessings, what do we receive as a result of believing in what Jesus did on the cross. And in verses 1 to 2, he lays out three of them, which I'm going to draw your consideration to this morning. Number one, it says in Romans chapter 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, the University of British Columbia conducted a survey of British Columbians, and they republish this survey every year right around Easter. And uh, the point of the survey is to take the temperature, the pulse, you might say, of the spirituality of British Columbians. And what is always surprising to me is that the survey shows that roughly 60% of British Columbians claim belief in God. They claim belief in God, but that same survey, every year they republish this survey, shows that somewhere between 2 to 3% attend worship services regularly. 2 to 3% of British Columbians go to church. 60% claim belief in God. This isn't Christianity exclusively. This is all religions in British Columbia, from Sikhism to Hinduism to Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism. 60% of British Columbians claim belief in God, but 2 to 3% go to church. And slightly better than that, somewhere around 6% claim to pray on a regular basis. Do you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like saying you believe in water, but you don't drink. It sounds to me like saying you believe in air, but you don't breathe. It's a contradiction in terms. If we are worshiping God, if we know that there's a God, if we have access to this power that can bring blessing into our lives, that can settle all of our issues, then why wouldn't we want to know Him? Why wouldn't we want to talk to Him? Why wouldn't we want to come and worship Him? Well, the God that they believe in is not the true God, of course. And the devotion that And the admiration that they might have for him is not true devotion. You see, what that survey really shows, 60% of British Columbians claim that they believe in God, but only 2 to 3% go to any kind of a worship service. What this is telling us is that despite our illusions, we as a people here within British Columbia and Canada, you know, all across Canada, we are still very much so at war with God. We might feel at peace 
We might feel as though we have come to a happy equilibrium, but whether we're willing to admit it or not, whether we're willing to speak of it in such terms or not, this God that we claim to know exists is a God that we are very much so, as Canadians, at war against. And the strange irony of it is that God wants peace with us. Not a truce. There is a difference. He wants peace. And we get that peace through Jesus Christ. We get that peace through believing in the Lord and what he's done for us on the cross. We look at our fellow countrymen. This historically has been a Christian country. We still have churches on every street corner. Canada cannot say that they don't know about God. Canada cannot say that they are unaware of who Jesus Christ is. They know who he is. They understand the blessing of following him. Every Christmas and Easter, though we try to drown out Christmas with Hallmark gift cards and, you know, syrupy, weird romance Netflix specials, you know, those holiday rom-coms that come around every year. And, and at Easter time, though we know the meaning of Easter and the power of resurrection, we bury that with chocolate and Easter bunny and eggs and these kinds of things. But we know the truth. We are at war with the truth. In 1978, there was a man who was at war who finally surrendered and accepted terms of peace. You've probably heard of this man, though you couldn't remember his name. He was a private. His name was Teruro Nakamura, and he was a private in the Japanese Imperial Army. And he surrendered in 1978, fighting since... World War II, which ended in 1945. Here's a man who continued his struggle, despite the fact that everyone else had said, it's over, we're done, we have absolute surrender, and the war is declared finished. American troops in Indonesia, specifically the island of Moratai, would every day broadcast on loudspeakers into the jungle where this man was, where this man was hiding, the war is over. Japan has surrendered. They would leave newspaper clippings dating back to 1945 in which Emperor Hirohito signed the peace surrender. They would leave these newspaper clippings in places in the jungle where they knew he would find them. And yet this man would not surrender. This is the world in which you and I live. Jesus has come to atone for sins. Jesus has come to make it possible for us to reconcile with God the Father. Jesus has come so that we can have peace, but we don't want peace. We prefer our struggle because we won't have God as our king. But what Paul is saying for you and me is that belief in Christ gives us peace. We're no longer fighting against the Lord anymore we now can accept his rule into our lives. And that's not the only blessing that comes. Through his rule, we receive even greater blessing because he rules with grace. That's the second thing that Paul draws our attention to. He makes a statement there in verse 2. He says, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
What an amazing, an amazing gift. We're no longer under law. We're no longer living our lives by a series of strikes against us, balanced by a series of potential good things that we've done, in which we all know that we ultimately we've fallen short of the glory of God, and there's no hope whatsoever. We're not living on a system now of just demerits where God is tracking our wrongs. To the contrary, now God's desire is to bless us and to give us grace that is blessing we don't deserve. And we have access to it. Many of you are aware of the fact that I have a twin brother. And uh, I jokingly say that I'm the good one and he's the evil one. It's my evil, evil twin brother. He's not really evil. But then again, if I were the evil one, would I tell you that he was the good one? I don't know. I only tease, I only tease. But my brother, he was uh, stationed in Washington, D.C. And he went and he took the tour of the White House. Uh, they, they take people through the White House all the time. You can take tours and whatnot. And so he took the guided tour. But then he walked around to the west side of the building, which I'm sure you're all familiar. This is where the Oval Office is located. It's the West Wing. And there's a separate drive that enters there where dignitaries and various politicians can go and visit uh, the President of the United States if they want to. It's not a part of the guided tour, put it that way. And he walked around, and there was a Marine that was there, and uh, he got to talking to this Marine. It's a lowly guard on guard duty, uh, which, you know, I can relate with having been a Marine and having done guard duty on so many different occasions. And and uh, so my twin brother started talking to this guy, and they were carrying on a conversation. And eventually, the Marine on duty said, oh, sorry, hang on one second. And he kind of shushed him over to the side. They were standing right there close to the driveway. And he, you know, he pushed him over to the side, and he reached back into the, into the guardhouse there, and he pushed a button. And the, uh, the, uh, the gate lifted, and a limousine rolled in. And my brother was straining to kind of get a look, and he couldn't quite see who it was. But this limousine pulled up to the, uh, the awning there where the entrance to the West Wing is. And then, lo and behold, he saw, he saw Ivanka Trump getting out of the, the limousine and going to see President Donald Trump. This is back, obviously, when he was still the President of the United States. And you know what the difference between Ivanka and my twin brother is? She had access. With Christ, we have access to the Father. We have access to somebody far greater than any prime minister. We have access to someone far more powerful than any president. And we have access to someone whose desire is to bring peace into our lives and to pour out upon us unmerited favor, which is grace. And that's what Paul is saying. Through faith in Jesus, number one, we have peace we can lay down our arms. We no longer have to fight against God. We can accept the blessing of his rule in our life. And when we do so, we have access to the throne of grace. We can go where previously we had been barred. Now we're able to enter in and we're able to have a relationship with God the Father. But that brings us to the third thing, which really makes up the bulk of these first 11 verses in chapter 5. Having been granted peace, having obtained access, this last thing that the Apostle Paul says is so sweet and so precious. He makes a statement in verse 2. He says, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and he makes this statement, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
That seems kind of a strange statement to say at, at first glance, reading through it. We worship, this is what the meaning of that word is, we rejoice, we lift up praise in hope of the glory of God. Well, hope sounds almost, based on our 21st century ears and the way that we use this word hope today, it sounds almost like a wish, like we're having some wishful thinking here. Is that, is that what this word hope means? And the reality is, no, that is not the way that the Bible uses this word hope. And one of the things we need to be careful to do this morning as we begin this series on Romans chapter 5 is to make sure we understand the biblical meaning of hope. You and I today, when we use this word hope, we use it in at least three different ways that I, I've been able to track. Number one, we think that hope, when we use this word, it, it essentially is describing a desire for something good to happen in the future. For example, a child might say, I hope daddy gets home before dinner. I hope he comes home early tonight so that we can play Tickle Monster before dinner. In other words, he's expressing, this child is expressing a desire for some good thing to happen in the future. That's how the word hope is used by the majority of us. The second way we use it is it's a good thing in the future uh, that we're desiring uh, namely, it, namely, oh, sorry, it's, it's, we might say our hope is that dad will arrive safely, right? So hope can be a desire for something good in the future, and hope can also be used as a synonym for that good thing in the future. I, I'm kind of stumbling over my words, but let me, let me back up here. You could say, I hope, that's the verb form of it, I hope dad gets home early. That's a desire for a good thing in the future. But you can also take that word hope and use it as a synonym for that good thing. In other words, my hope is dad gets home early. So these are the two ways you see it used most commonly in the English language. But the third way that it's used is that we might use the word hope as the reason or the basis or the means by which we will obtain that good thing in the future. For example, you're traveling across the country on an airplane, and your airplane got away from the gate late because it's air travel, and this is just how it always happens. You're never on time, and you know you have a connecting flight at your destination. You have to get off of this plane. You got to get on another plane in order to make your ultimate destination, but you're late. You're not going to make it on time. And the pilot or the captain, he comes on the, the intercom there, and he announces you know, the only way we're going to make it on time is if we bear out hope of a tailwind that will push us, that will accelerate our aircraft to help us get where we need to be. And so in this particular instance, we might say a good tailwind is our only hope of arriving on time. So just to review, there are three ways that we use this word. A desire for something good in the future, number one. Number two, the thing in the future that we desire. And number three, we might use this word hope to refer to the basis or the means by which we hope to attain to our desire in the future. Now, all three of these uses are found in the scriptures. We find them used that way many times in the scripture. But the most important feature of biblical hope is not present in any of these ordinary uses. In fact, the distinctive meaning of hope in Scripture, you might say is a little bit the opposite of the way you and I would use it in ordinary usage today. 
I don't mean that you're desiring for something bad as opposed to desiring for something good. That's not what I mean there. What I mean is that within the Scriptures, hope is used not to talk of something that you're wishing or desiring to come true, but that the way that the Bible uses the word hope is it's describing a good thing in the future that will certainly happen. That's an important distinction that we need to make today. We're not saying when we use this word hope in a biblical sense that, uh, you know, I really hope God comes for me the way I hope my dad will get home early. We're not saying in the biblical sense that um, God is my hope the way we might say dad's early arrival is my hope. And we're not saying, well, God's going to get me through this tough situation, I hope, the way that we might say a hope for a tailwind to get my plane there on time. You see, in all of the ways we use it, we're expressing a desire for a good thing in the future, but we're saying we have this desire for this good thing in the future that we're not sure will actually come to happen. So in a sense, we're saying we wish for something to happen, but we don't know that it will happen. And the way that the Bible uses the word hope, it's a word that is speaking of something future, which we should desire, which we should want, but not something that might or might not come to happen. No, 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 the opposite of that. It is bedrock certain it will come to pass. That's the way the Bible is using the word hope. Now, we do find it used in all those other senses, but when we talk about salvation in Christ, that's the meaning of the Scriptures. And the reason why we say that is because God is the one who describes for us through the word, what it is that we're hoping for, what we ought to be hoping for. And so hope isn't grounded then in some sort of a mathematical possibility or some sort of a logical possibility. It's grounded in what many theologians refer to as moral certainty. And what do I mean by that? I might say to you this morning, that I have a very strong hope that after the Queen's funeral tomorrow, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will announce in honor of the passing of the Queen that he will not collect taxes for 2022. (laughs) I hope for that. Now, why are you laughing? What? Why are you laughing? Now, there's no reason why he couldn't say that. You're still laughing. There, there is no logical impossibility to it. I mean, he could do it, you know, in the same way that, you know, we look at mathematical certainties. I have two apples, okay, and I have two other apples, and I take two, and I add two, and I got four, right? So that is a mathematical certainty. Like, there there are certain things that are mathematically certain. There are certain things that are logically certain. Speaking of logic, one of the fathers of logic, Plato, uh, we use this sort of argumentation in which we say, well, all men are mortal. Plato is a man. Therefore, Plato is mortal. And indeed, 
he was, he is, he's, he's dead. He's dead to this day. And so there's a logical truth, there's a logical certainty, there's a mathematical truth, there's a mathematical certainty. And when we speak of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau possibly not taking any taxes from me for the remainder of 2022, there's nothing mathematically impossible about it, and there's nothing logically impossible about it. He has technically the majority with this, uh, you know, confidence agreement with the NDP. He has the majority to, uh, to make it happen, and he has the mathematical capacity to bring it about. You, you can say all of these things, and yet I say to you that I have this hope the prime minister will not take another penny out of my wallet for 2022, and you all laugh. And the reason why you laugh is because although we can say there's a mathematical possibility and there's a logical possibility, there is certainly a moral likelihood, you might say a moral certainty, when you consider the prime minister's will on these matters, not to do that. We don't know for sure whether or not he would announce a tax holiday, but we know for sure that he's not going to announce a tax holiday. I mean, on the one hand, this is how we need to think of hope in terms of how God is describing hope, how God is using the word hope. It's a moral certainty based upon the will of God. Now, I know for a fact, without knowing for a fact, but I have absolute 100% confidence that the prime minister will continue to tax me because it is grounded in the moral character of who he is, of what government does, of how government functions. By that same line of reasoning, Paul is saying that through Jesus Christ, we have a moral certainty that there is a glory waiting for us. That's what Paul is getting at here. And that's what I want you to see today. As we work our way through chapter 5, God's desire for you, and we're going to see multiple arguments, multiple arguments through the first 11 verses God's desire for you is that you would know His will is to bless you as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. His desire is for you to behold His glory. Paul makes this statement here in chapter 5 and verse 2. We rejoice, he says, we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in it. Now, what is this glory? I've heard preachers over the years talk about it. They will oftentimes refer to the kind of thing that we describe when we talk about first responders heroically rushing into burning buildings and putting their lives on the line in order to rescue the perishing. I've also heard other preachers at different times describe it as the kind of praise and the kind of honor that attaches to, say, a sports team that overcomes impossible odds to go on to win the championship in this unbelievable, uh, you know, David versus Goliath struggle in the final, in the final game of the, of the season. And 
You know, I have many times tried to explain glory in that way. But I'm not going to do that today. I have given so much time and energy trying to define this word just to come up with the perfect illustration, to come up with the perfect analogy. But I have decided, as I've gotten older and really wrestled more with the Scriptures, that I'm not going to do that anymore. And the reason is because God's glory has been shown in the briefest of glimpses, but never in its fullness. And more and more, I've come to realize that my attempts at trying to describe it or define it or quantify it or categorize it for you do a great disservice to what the Father is actually saying. And so I'm not going to try to define it or describe it for you, though I have in the past. I want you to just listen to the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's touching on this theme of glory, and you're like, oh, just come on, Paul, tell me, what is it? What are you about to say? What is this glory? Describe it. And he does. And he says this, as it stands written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what the heart of man has never imagined, this is what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a glory that our greatest imaginations could never wrap around. It's a glory that he wants to give us, but which we can't possibly conceive of it. It is something great. It is something sweet. It is extraordinary. It is the thing which we all should be living for, which we should be striving to see. But God has said, you're going to see it one day. But for today, you have no idea what it is, except that you know it's incredible. Uh, and that's really how Scripture begins to talk about it and quantify it. You'll recall Moses, he was like, Lord, just show me your glory. And God said to Moses, no, 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 can't happen. I show you my glory, you die, for mortal flesh cannot see my glory and live. And he was like, well, just let me see it from the back. You know, he tries to haggle with him and like, you know, work out a deal here. But we see these glimpses, what I would call shadows of it. It's not the thing. It's like the monster coming down the hall and you see it on the movie screen and you see the shadow pressing and the, the shadow gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and you go, whoa, this monster coming around the corner is going to be huge. In a similar sort of way, we see shadows of it presented to us in the scriptures, but we're never shown what it is. And that's where we need to live. I'll give you a couple of examples. God shows that his glory is very great by saying to us, that it is eternal. Another way of saying to us, it is infinite. Romans chapter 11, we'll get there in like, you know, 10 years, but we'll get there. <laughs> Romans chapter 11, he says, for him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him will be glory forever and ever. Amen. It goes on for all the time. God shows us that his glory is great by contrasting it with the frail glory of this world. We read, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, all flesh is like grass, 
And its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. He calls it glory by describing it in the word of God as a weighty thing. C.S. Lewis, a number of years ago, wrote a sermon based on glory, and he called it the weight of glory, something heavy that rests upon us. And so we read of this from Paul again in 2 Corinthians. He says, for this light momentary affliction, the trials and the struggles that we're going through in this life, he says it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond any comparison. To behold and to delight in this glory, the Scriptures tell us, is the reason why God made us. A prophet Isaiah Chapter 43, God speaking through the prophet says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters from afar. Bring them from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. This desire to share his glory with us to bless us with this amazing, indescribable thing was on Christ's mind the night of his betrayal, the night before he was crucified. We read in John chapter 17, he's praying earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, speaking of you, dear church, I pray that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And the whole reason why God works this power of resurrection is precisely so that you and I can see this glory. As I read at the start of the worship service today, 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What John is saying is that it requires glory, a certain kind of glory, to behold the glory of the Lord. And the reason why Jesus died Yes, it was to atone for your sins. Yes, it was to clear the debt that stood against you. But he died to bless you with the glory necessary so that you could see God and behold his glory. Listen, church, I can't describe it. It is our hope. It is the certainty for which we live. Everybody's talking about glory. Everybody's trying to describe it. Everybody's trying to come up with, you know, apt descriptions. I can't do it. The scriptures don't do it. The scriptures hold it out as something that's there, but then just as soon as you're like, oh, show me more, they say, not yet. I don't know what glory is, but I know I want it. And I want it because I want to be able to look Jesus in the eyes and fall down at his feet someday and say, thank you for dying for me. I want the glory for whatever it is because it's what I need to see Jesus. 
I have a thousand times said, man, I wish there was something I could do to say thank you, and I can't come up with it. The best I can hope for is just to grab his ankles and just beg him for a thousand years, tell him how grateful I am. And I can't even get there unless he helps me get there. That is the thing worthy of our worship. Rejoice, worship, and glory. You know how I know how great it is? Because Paul says it makes us worship when we think about it. It sure does me. The man who wanted to be with Jesus was told to go home. This demon-possessed maniac who had been delivered was ordered to go home. The words, return to your home, must have made this man's heart sink in depression and sadness. Again, home for him was probably not a warm, fuzzy place. He had probably tormented memories of where he'd come from. Home was a place so dark and full of pain, he probably just wanted to escape. But walking with Jesus means we've been given peace, we've been given access into grace, and we've been given a hope of glory. And so even though the thought of returning home for this demon-possessed man, I'm sure conjured up painful, painful memories, Jesus is able to send him back there in order to use his life as a showcase of God's grace. We can go wherever our shepherd tells us to go because he is our shepherd. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we say thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. God, show us your glory. We want to see it because we want to see you. Help prepare your people to be a people ready to behold the great, the marvelous, the wonderful, almighty I am, the one who loved us and died for us. Make us a people fit for Jesus. We pray you do this in Christ's name. Amen. As the worship team comes, I'd like to ask you to stand. We have a hope that Christ is returning. It's not something that I kind of, fingers crossed, I'm hoping for. I know it with a certainty. If you look, you'll see. He is already coming.